So I thought DC would be a good place to get a job. I send out 200 resumes. I get nothing. I volunteered on environmentals for Clinton Gore in 92 campaign. All right. That helped, but I, I interned on Capitol Hill as maybe a record-breaking oldest intern in the house. <laughs> How old were you? I was 25 time? and married, prematurely balding. <laughs> On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to Data Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. We're broadcasting today from a classic in Georgetown known as The Tombs. If you're ever a Georgetown student or have known anyone who's a Georgetown student, you know about The Tombs. It is literally on the footsteps of Georgetown, and so any given day, you'll find faculty members, you'll find people from the Georgetown community at large, and at night, it's pretty much reserved for the students. That's the reason for the tombs, and the reason we're here today is because our guest expert, Sean Todd, is a proud graduate of Georgetown University, a proud Hoya. Hallelujah. Sean, welcome and cheers. Bill, it is an honor to be here from... A Georgetown Hoya to a Texas Longhorn, two Longhorns, from a Democrat to Republican, from your son's old soccer coach to my son's Cub Scout master, thank you for having me. Sean Todd is founder and president of Fox Potomac Resources, which is an advocacy firm here in town that helps clients in many areas, including energy, environment, works in high tech, works for universities, and does some transportation issues on top of that. But... The reason we're at the tombs today is Sean specifically requested this location because apparently there's some history here. And maybe we can get to that in just a sec because the tombs is known across town as the Georgetown student hangout. If you've never been here, it's like a classic Rathskeller. It is literally in the basement of an old 18th century townhouse. They have live music, and at times they have DJs, they have half-priced burgers. Uh, one of the coolest things about this place, I think, is the fact that while they opened, it was, they opened in 1962, and you can find an scripted name of every single person who has worked here since the day it opened. But Sean, the question I have for you about the tombs is, they're also known for one other thing. It's called the 99-Day Club. <laughs> were you a member of the 99-Day Club? I, was that an option when you were a student it here? It was an option. Would you like it to explain what the 99-Day Club is? Uh, well, I was not a member, however. Uh, well, now I'm really disappointed. My favorite memory of this place, though, is my last exam, senior year. I finished it. I came right here, and I sat at the end of the bar from mid-afternoon till close, and uh, had a good time. There's been a lot of shenanigans here, though. That's Probably enough about the atmosphere of the 
Fair enough. social scene at Georgetown. Fair enough. Then let me shift to ask you about Fox Potomac Resources. So this is a firm that you've had going on for almost a decade and a half, right? Maybe right. almost pushing two decades. Right. Was uh, it 2001 January, when you started? January 1, 2002. Okay, We 2002. opened up shop in the, in the spare bedroom. All right. What prompted you to open up your own firm? Well, great question, Bill. And it's uh, got a multi-layered background. Every question has complicated background to it. But essentially, I was uh, working at a firm with your wife, Zelda. That's right. International Technology Corporation. And I had a subcontractor of our company ask me for the name of a Navy lobbyist because he needed some help lobbying the Navy. And I gave him the name of a friend who never called him back. Oh, no. And this guy now runs a top 10 lobbying shop in D.C. But he didn't happen to follow up. So I got to thinking, Bill. I was like, this isn't rocket scientists, rocket science. I think I could do this. And so I said to Dr. Shukla, Dev Shukla, he gave me one of my first chances. I said, Dev, I think I could help you out on this. And so we talked over the course of a couple months. I called in sick one Friday. I flew out there to Walnut Creek, California, and we had dinner, and he said, okay, Sean, tomorrow morning, I meet you, 8 a.m. So, I was in the Holiday Inn, I don't think I slept that night, I showed up, 8 a.m. with two cups of coffee, and at the end of that conversation, he said, he looked at me across the table and shook my hand and said, okay, I hire you, two months. All right. And so Dr. Shukla gave me my first chance as a independent lobbyist, and so I gave notice to my employer mm-hmm. and as it turned out two weeks later they went chapter 11 oh. I would have been oh. fired anyway oh perfect timing so that became a client they transitioned me to help with the transition they've been a client for 18 years and we've gone through four so, four corporate mergers yeah. they're still a client 18 years later that's fantastic so we get, let me let me stop you just a sec there and ask the question so what was what was the goal of that two-month contract? What did he expect you uh, to do for him? Okay, great question. So I worked at the Department of Energy, and that's a whole other background we'll, story. And we will get to that. Yeah. So I was asked, tasked by Dev, Dr. Shukla, who's a fascinating guy in his own right, to help him win work at the Department of Energy. Okay. So it sort of reflects this trend from legislative branch to executive branch lobbying, which I think is a trend of the last 10, 15 years. Well, yeah, with sequestration and the surrender of the power of the purse from Congress to the administration, exactly. it has become a cottage industry. Exactly. No, no. So a lot of my practice is focused on the executive branch, particularly Department of Energy, Department of Defense, EPA, because gotcha. my firm does clean up and clean tech. That's what we do. And by the way, it's the world's smallest energy lobbying firm. So, so small, we're almost becoming nonprofit, but not quite there yet. <laughs> um, but for Dev, so he was, it was a two month contract to help him win work at DOE. Okay. So, contracts are everything. All you do for clients is try to help them make money, essentially. It could be defense, it could be policy, it could be tax, it could be contracts. This one had to be a contract. So, he wanted to influence the RFP, the request for a proposal such that his team that he wanted to get on, this is getting re- really detailed. Oh, go for it. He, he, the requirements of the RFP stated that each member of the joint venture had to share fee, profit. He didn't want that. He just wanted to become a member of this team. So 
through lobbying, network of relationships, programmatic knowledge, institutional knowledge, we removed that provision from the RFP. Okay. And he got he got on the team for that contract, that bid, bid and proposal. Did not end up winning the contract, but he got his goal of getting on the team. So that contract with Dev, Dev Shukla, it was called Innovative Technical Solutions Incorporated. He sold it to Gilbane for like $100 million. He, um, he kept me on for like a year. So two months. Right. Two months. But what that allowed me to do was uh, to be on my own. My company that went to Chapter 11 hired me to help with the transition. And then my grad school, University of Maryland, hired me. So I'm looking around. My hair's on fire. I've got no hair. You can't see that on the radio. But I looked around after a couple months like, it's actually working to my yeah. utter shock. Yeah. So, Bill, everything about this business, to me, is getting clients. Well, so do clients come to you like Dr. Shukla? with a specific goal in mind or do you have some clients that say sean we know you're an expert at doe can you sniff around and find us some opportunities you know but in my experience it's always been very specific okay very specific about a certain goal for example i met yesterday with a fortune 500 company so you're a problem solver i think that's the way most lobbyists independent lobbyists work is to help solve problems to overcome barriers or to help them solve a problem i think that's the best yeah. value add for independent yeah so lobbies. then how do you market that capability so i'm not very good at this but in what i found out is that word of mouth is the most common way of getting clients the textbooks tell you 80 percent of all new businesses from old business yeah. from, from referrals yeah so and i that's been true in my experience as well there's been a few cases of cold calls which actually worked but I've pitched hundreds of clients, mm -hmm. and you, you get told no well more than 50% of the time. Some old hand told me if you get 10% or 5% hit rate, that's pretty good. Right. So most of the time you're hearing no for those people that are thinking about trying this as a, as a potential career or giving it a try. Yeah. It's, you have to be comfortable with rejection, yeah. don't you? <laughs> okay, yeah. so what... Let me, let's, let's go ahead and back up and talk a bit about your path to this point. And Very good. along that way, if you could think about the things that may have caused you to fashion Fox Potomac Resources yeah. the way you have it today, I think that yeah. might be helpful for our listeners as well. So you, you, you came to town. You were a Georgetown student. You said you, grad, you went to grad school at Maryland. Yeah, but I went three years in California first, okay. which was really the seminal experience that got me into this. All right. So graduated in 89. Bice the bicentennial class of Georgetown the University. Bicentennial class, really. And wow. um, Governor Clinton was our speaker at our graduation. So I almost went to China to teach English. Didn't go there. I heard about this thing called the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, which is sort of the Catholic version of the Peace Corps. Okay. It's a one-year commitment. It's actually older than the Peace Corps. So I tossed in an application. And got ex I was the last acceptance. Wow. Went to California. Um, and so I was placed in this community in Santa Ana, California, the okay. poor boy of Orange County. Yeah, right. So I worked with inner city youth, and my role was to help them volunteer, sort of to give them, hey, you're at risk. You're growing up with, you know, maybe no father, you know, um, tough situation, but you still have to help your your fellow brother in your community. So I got, 
high school kids to volunteer in the community. Oh, right. So Sorry, one year. Community service, community organization. Yeah, that's what it was. Outreach. Yeah, outreach. Perfect. So it was a one-year commitment. I happened to be, um, I happened to be placed in a community because there's four tenets: social justice, community, spirituality, and simple lifestyle. I happened to be placed in a community with this woman I happened to fall in love with, and so we got fell in love, got married. Is that how you met Stacey? Yeah, I've never heard that story. Yeah, how about yeah. that? Yeah, it's there's more to it. But anyway, so I did that for a year. So did Stacia. We stayed in Southern California for two more years. I was I taught in East LA for two years. Oh man, I got the education. Yeah, I bet. It it was a tough tough area. I mean, that was the height of the gang warfare. I had kids shot and killed. Oh my gosh. I had drugs in my classroom, PCP well, yeah, it's not in my that classroom. Far from Rodney King, would have been. We were there during the riots. Yeah, we didn't leave our apartment for three days. But um, so all that way by way of saying, Bill, L.A. I don't know when the last time you flew into LAX, mm-hmm. but in the early '90s there was a brown cloud over mm-hmm. the over the city. Thermal inversion from all the pollution and the haze. Yeah. And, yeah. So long story short, I caught the green bug in L.A. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Not just the air, the brown cloud, which is better now. Mm-hmm. Particulate matters are much better now. Air quality is much better now. But even the oceans were polluted. You go to the beach, the best beaches, some of them in the world, you have signs, do not swim. Duh. You will become violently ill. So I caught the green bug. I was never really politically active at Georgetown, even though everybody at Georgetown. What did you study at Georgetown, by the way? International affairs. Okay. Just like everybody. All right. I wanted to become a diplomat. Gotcha. Never passed the okay. foreign service exam. Oh, well, that's a tough <laughs> exam. <laughs> so you go to L.A., you get this bug, and that leads you to the graduate program? So we get married. We come back east. Our families are East Coast families. Mm-hmm. So we come back to D.C. It's equidistant between my wife's family in Jersey and my family in North Carolina. Gotcha. So I thought D.C. would be a good place to get a job. I send out 200 resumes. I get nothing. I volunteered on environmentals for Clinton Gore in 92 campaign. All right. That helped, but I, I interned on Capitol Hill as maybe a record-breaking oldest intern in the house. <laughs> How old were you? I was 25 time? and married, <laughs> prematurely balding. Can you imagine being married, Bill? No. And interning? <laughs> just, I can't so get the image out of my head. It's uh, not an enviable position. Right. So all that, this, this is like a very nonlinear. I eventually get a job in the administration. Somebody gives me a break. Like everybody in this town, somebody gives you a break. Yep. Somebody gives you a chance. Yep. So in my case... And you didn't get that break or that chance by just sitting at your intern desk, did you? Well, here's a great lesson to me. Um, I got a I got an interview, and I brought my SF... What's that standard form, 91 or something, mm-hmm. the old government form? Yep. It took me a year to get this interview with this guy. Wow, the Department of Energy, Office of Environmental Management. And he said, I need you to fill out this SF-91. Fortunately, I brought it with me, a filled out form. It's like 30 pages, Bill, if you remember. I did one for the FCC in 84. Painful. And I know, it's like worse than the SAT. Terrible. Yeah. Terrible. So thank goodness I had it filled out when I came to that interview. I gave it, he's, he asked for one. If I hadn't had it, I think it would have taken months longer. And remember, I'm married and unemployed. My uh-huh. father-in-law is not happy. Yeah. So I give him my filled out SF-91 or whatever it is. I get hired. 
at the Department of Energy as a staff assistant, right? All right. My wife's like, what's a staff assistant? Well, I'm a staff assistant to the assistant secretary of the secretary. She's like, you're a, you're a third level below a secretary? <laughs> you're the assistant to the assistant. Yeah. <laughs> so here's the other break, Bill. It was like one of those uh, pivot points, you know. The assistant secretary's speechwriter left. Mm. And somebody said, he said, who wants to do this? And I put my head down, but I stuck up my hand. And that's how I became a speechwriter. So I always knew you as a speechwriter at the department. I did not yeah. know that you fell into this. Fell into? Doesn't that happen to everybody? You fall into these things? Yeah, it, well, not everyone appreciates the value of that. It often starts just from networking and networking. making yourself known you gotta and exposed get to, the to table. a lot of the different opportunities. Expose yourself, get a seat at the table, raise your hand yeah. when asked. And so I had no experience as a speechwriter. But you could write could write but that's what, that's what a liberal arts education does it teaches Bingo you how to write there, my friend yeah so i learned i was a writer my first speech was the assistant secretary came in and he said this is uh this is not your best work is it and i said <laughs> no sir it's not so i did that for like three years bill and i got an education at the department of energy This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts. Okay, so I imagine as a speechwriter, well, you're, you're no longer the assistant to the assistant, but you're still an assistant. You're a staff point person, yeah, essentially. Exactly. Right? You're as a speechwriter, though. You're getting exposed to a broad set of issues, problems, opportunities. You have to get up to speed on a topic in a heartbeat, and then put it in the voice of someone else. That's a great. You just captured it, and it's a great. I think it's a great education. Yeah. At any agency, because you have to know the issues. Right. And here's the benefit: you are developing this network of relationships because it's an intense environment there's no second chances you either deliver the speech or you don't right and i was delivering speeches to the secretary at eight o'clock at night sometimes mm -hmm. but you're so you have office directors you know program managers assistant secretaries bringing you these bricks and you're putting the mortar together in this intense environment and you have to produce this cogent document yeah in someone else's voice with some humor and it's a tough, it's an education. So you get to know, say, the Department of Energy, solar energy, nuclear weapons, nuclear waste management. And so that was my seminal sort of experience in my career to be able to, and that's still my differentiator yeah. in my practice because I know the Department of Energy. That's my home plate. That's my bread yeah. and butter. That's how I help clients now win work at DOE because gotcha. of that. Gotcha. And so that's all. So you, you were there for like five years? Four years. All right, four years, and then you went to IT? I went to IT after that. A buddy of mine said, hey. Tell, tell me about that transition. What? Again, pretty random. Okay. Very random. 
I was ready to leave after four years because it's, you know. That's enough in an administration. Yeah. It, pretty much at any position, quite I, frankly. I agree. And I had gone to Maryland to get my graduate degree. Okay. And, um, and what was that in? It was a Master's of Science in Conservation Biology and Sustainable so Development. The, this is the green bug. The green bug. Born its head. Yeah, it was just climate change Got in it. the 90s. Got it. And um, it was an interdisciplinary degree of economics, science, and policy. So that's what I, my mother-in-law said to my wife, what is, what is Sean going to do with this degree? <laughs> and I said, stay shut. I don't know, but it's like, it's what I like studying. Mm -hmm. You have to do what you like. Mm -hmm. You have to do what interests you. You can't fake yeah. it. So that's what I liked. So I got that degree at DOE. And purely, again, kind of random falling into things. I, um, a buddy of mine said, hey, these guys are hiring. They need somebody like you. So I interviewed and got the job. Yeah. And so you fall it. You have to be open to like exactly. giving it a shot. But what I found, Bill... The first two weeks in the private sector, mm -hmm. I was uh, I was pretty intimidated. Oh, really? Uh, Why? Yeah, because I'd never been in the. You're expected to be sector. an expert and produce. Is that the thing? Well, it's like that Ghostbusters line where it said, "You haven't been in the private sector. <laughs> Expect results." <laughs> right? That's right. Exactly. I mean, I, results, yeah, but it was a different focus, it was a different environment. It was new to me, mostly because it was new. Yeah. I still got into it. And I was given a nice role, and I was expected to help them win work at Department of Energy. Gotcha. So contract capture. Yeah, exactly. And uh, but mixed with lobbying okay. on the hill. Okay. So oh, okay. and that's essentially my practice now. Because of your extensive experience as an intern. <laughs> <laughs> the six-month married intern, oldest intern on Capitol Hill. So um, that's another education. Working at International Technology Corporation. Two, wearing two hats, director of federal agency relations and director of marketing. So it's essentially become my practice. What is lobbying but marketing the government? Exactly. So I marketed Department of Energy and the Hill. Yeah. And that sort of evolved into my own practice. And so um, that's sort of the story, Bill. But I'll add one other point. Mm -hmm. Um I had the risk appetite to start my own firm. Well, I think risk appetite is a fantastic description. So many people in this town faced with that same kind of crossroads in their life are either too risk adverse or they're risk foolish and they don't appreciate yeah. what it takes to pull this off. And, and, and to make that call while you have the kind of commitments at home that you did is very impressive, Sean. Well, I was very fortunate that my wife just said go for it. You know, if she, hadn't, if she had reservations, I would have probably had to say no. But she said, you know, she was busy raising babies. I thought, you know, I was kind of ignorant enough to try it. So I gave it a shot. Mm -hmm. But scaling up is a different challenge. So I didn't have the risk appetite to, like, meet a, a large payroll, even gradually. Um, I knew that, well, I didn't know, but I thought that I could meet my own payroll eventually. And so I'm a small shop, Bill. I only have to meet one or two people's payroll. It's not as challenging as the bigger boys who really have scaled. Oh, I'm not yeah, a businessman. So I just, you just do what you can. And so I sort of wish and think that I could have scaled up, but that's not really my, you have to do what you know how to do. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't have to scale up. Sometimes I wish I did, but 
I know that I'm not really suited to that. It's not my skill set. Right, well, that's a great transition. So let me ask you about your skill set. Because one of the consistent themes in 80 Proof Politics is we like to get into the tools yeah. that advocates use. Yeah. On a, and I know there's no such thing as a typical week. But in the course of a week, how much time do you spend relationship building, uh, talking directly to your client, preparing materials for a meeting? Give me, give me a sense of the kind of steps that you go through as you're working on behalf of all your clients. That is an essential question, Bill, which I, I still haven't figured out, that balance. <laughs> Don't but, tell your client. <laughs> so that balance between client development and servicing clients, it's, it's always evolving. In the beginning, like it's 80-20, right? You gotta, you gotta build a practice. So right, so you have to build a reputation. Reputation, but you know, client, just client list, portfolio. So in the beginning, it's probably 80-20 client development, servicing clients. Mm -hmm. Now it's, you know, maybe, maybe probably the opposite, the inversion, 80-20 opposite. I have adopted Ted Leonsis' philosophy. He's another Georgetown Which grad. Is? Well, he gave a talk, and I, with Georgetown Metropolitan Club, and he gave a talk, and it's hilarious, because as an internet evangelist, yeah. Ted, yeah. his PowerPoint was broken. <laughs> his equipment didn't work. So he just talked off cuff. That's often the best. Yeah, I think so too. But he said um, his plane was going down, and he made a list of his bucket list mm. as the plane was going down, literally. Mm. One of those things was balance between work and family. I thought, that's a pretty good, you know, North Star. Yeah. So that's been my North Star, balance work and family, coach kids, yeah. be a Cub Scout master, but, you know, do what you have to do at work. So balance has been my kind of modus operandi. But in terms of the toolkit and approach, so I have a white paper here from a client that I have to give input to. Mm -hmm. So he asked for it yesterday. He called me right before this interview, so I have to go home and kind of give my input on this white paper on contract RFPs. Okay, you've got your white paper. Your client wants you to take a look at it in the course of a very short, probably 24 to 48 hours. This is quite typical of client needs, yeah, right? right? But what's the, what's the expected outcome of the white paper and who's the intended audience? Where, where will this go? All right, great question, because it really gets to the essence of lobbying and, it, and bringing wins to the client. This is an executive branch focus. Okay. Happens to be the Department of Energy. This is an outside company that wants to penetrate the market because there's a very small cabal of five or six contractors that do get 90% of the work at the Department of Energy. Mm, very clickish. Very clickish. Um, second highest contracting agency in the federal government. Is that right? Who's number one? DOD? DOD. Okay. So these guys, 90% of their budget, DOE, goes out the door to contractors. So this is a client that's an outsider and is trying to make inroads. And so we have a white paper that attempts to influence the request for proposals, the, the performance evaluation criteria that matters who gets on a team, who's gonna have a chance to win the contract. And so, this is getting really detailed, Bill, but no, who, go for it. who gets on a team is determined by past performance yes. at the Department of Energy. Yes. 
And so past performance, in our view, needs to be broadened out to not just include past contracts, past performance contracts that are just exclusively on one single project of complexity, scope, and size. If you aggregate it into different projects that include maybe the same size, maybe the same complexity, maybe the same scope, but not all three into one mm -hmm. criterion, that way it broadens the past performance criteria and allows contractors to broaden the, 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 the pool of bidders. Yeah. So it's very kind of like inside baseball kind of niche lobbying stuff, Bill. Uh, so it, it sounds like a situation where the rules have been defined by practice and precedent to specifically minimize the potential pool of winners. So you just touched on something which is fascinating to me. A former client, top government, federal government contractor, their very first rule of engagement is to change the rules of engagement in their favor. Sure. And so that is lobbying in, an essence, in, a, in a nutshell, I think. If you can do that for a client, they're going to maximize their chances for success. And so big boys have a greater chance of probability of doing that. But when you have a small boy that's trying to do that, it's kind of fun to do. So that, that strategy, Bill, that's the most um, fun part of this job is to craft a strategy that is it's intellectually stimulating but also helps your client. It's like 3D chess, you know. It's yeah. really fun. Yeah. And that's it's not just conventional lobbying, go to a member, but it's really developing a strategy that that's going to help, but it's creative and it's outside the box and it works. Those are the fun things. Okay, so that is the purpose of the white paper. Who's the intended audience? Are the, the people writing the contract? Exactly. The people doing the You're evaluation exactly right. board? You're work? exactly right. The okay. procurement folks at the Department of Energy. Um, they're the ones who are, who are writing the contracts. Yeah. And so they're the going to be getting this there has you're, to be a point in that process where you're too late to the game though oh yeah and if you're too late game over yeah so you have so you at it's some off. point there's a notice of an intent to compete or an, an rfp so you have to pre-marketing is everything yeah you have to be ahead of the game yeah rfps when the contract ends they have to award the contract well, months and months ahead of time to allow for the transition. Absolutely. So they have to put the draft RFP out 12 months prior to that. They have to do their contract strategy six months prior to that. So it's a long-term. It's not like a hammer hitting a nail. You have to be way ahead of the game. Yeah. Almost like in every, I think, lobbying exercise, you have to be ahead of the game to, to get your intent. So objective. for you to be successful at that, you have to have relationships, a network that is an information chain if nothing else not, exactly. not not that they're trying to watch out to for sean todd and take care of his clients but so that you know when that process starts exactly bill and so you it gets back to the question you asked previously what's the balance between client development and servicing clients yeah. and and building your network it's a never-ending struggle you always have to be networking there's no job program in this country. You have networking is a job program in this country. The more you network, the greater chance you have of landing a job, landing mm -hmm. clients, yeah. and achieving your client's objective. Yeah. But that creative part, Bill, of lobbying, I think is the most exciting. 
And I'll give you one example on the legislative front, if you're interested. Oh, absolutely. Because I am curious. You've been agency-centric. Yeah. So but you mentioned that you do some work on the Hill. Yeah. So it's about two-thirds, one-third. Okay. So the creative side is really fun. It gets your juices flowing. So I'll give you one case study, which is how everything happens, right? You learn by case studies. You do by case studies. So I had this waste, you know, nuclear waste client. And they were impacted by another bill that a big, a larger company was promoting mm-hmm. in another action. So company X was importing a huge amount of Italian low-level radioactive waste. Mm. And so it, every action there was an opposite equal reaction. So it caused the congressman from Tennessee, through whose district it was going to be processed, to write a bill called the Radioactive Importation Deterrence Act, RIDS Act. It passed the House, right? Nobody wants nuclear waste coming into the country, right? Right. But it affected my client's revenue because we import 5 to 10% of our revenue from Canada, treat it, and return it to the country of origin. So my client and I, Dr. Lou Senefani, CEO of Permafix, we got together and we said, how are we going to how are we going to address this? Because this bill, the chairman of the Science and Technology Committee in the House was pushing this bill, which passed the floor of the House. We talked to him, and we told him our dilemma. And so through just discussion and conversation and strategy, Dr. Senefani and I, we said, what about, well, we treat this waste. We're bringing it in from Canada, and we treat it, and we return it to Canada, right. the country of origin. What's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. Treat and return. And so we came up with this treat and return policy. And so we pitched it to the House. And it, we were too late because it already passed. It was going to vote for the floor of the House. And so it passed the House. So we go to the Senate sponsor, Tennessee senator. And we present our case, Tennessee company. And we said, well, we treat this, but we return it to the country of origin. Why not have this treat and return policy in place? Waste doesn't stay in country. It goes back. Everyone's happy. And so that actually, the Senate sponsor let the bill die in the Senate. And treat and return became the de facto policy of this country. So you can accept the waste, treat it, package it, dispose of it, return it to the country of origin. So that was a creative... You know, you don't, those don't those opportunities don't come along very often. So no, you they have don't. to um, take advantage of it and and you know do right by the client. But being creative, that's the fun part of this job. Yeah. And uh, so it was a rare success. You know, those successes don't come by very often. Now, you know, that is very rare, and I think that's an important thing to note, Sean, because there are a lot of the time there are client expectations, but also the expectations of young advocates getting started in town that you have to bat a thousand that you really have to hit it out of the park every time you step up. And it is such a miscalculation for a professional career in this town. I mean, I love to always say that we measure our success in Washington by inches. Mm -hmm. You move, you move the boulder, you move the boulder and every once in a while it rolls down the hill, (laughs) but it is oftentimes those small gains where the real opportunity lies. I wish I had known that years ago. <laughs> well, I, I'm sorry. Success I'm, by inches. I should have done this years ago. <laughs> success by inches. And that leads to greater successes. Yeah. I love it. I love that framework. I'm going to use it, Bill. 
And what a great way to close this out. Sean, I really appreciate you joining us today. Cheers for being here. Bill, I wish you the very, very best. This is a brilliant idea. I want this to blow up. I hope it goes just crazy for you. And you've just heard our new marketing slogan right there, folks. <laughs> so in closing, remember, kids, no matter what you think about the current state of politics in D.C., whether you're a glass empty or a glass full kind of person, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. It's Thanks, been a pleasure Sean. talking to you. Great. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the Presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.